rather shame up or gear if you've let all the fans down. Can we not lock this? It's a fact. I am not playing mind games. I am talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions I have uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Now you're very welcome along to Team 33 and a call here with you for the next hour or so. Coming up on tonight's show, we are going to be talking about the Ireland draw with Portugal nil-nil in the Aviva Stadium. Quite an impressive performance from Ireland despite not being able to get the win in the end. But I think the evidence is clear that things are starting to improve under Stephen Kenny and the, the train is starting to rumble on, as they say. We're also going to be talking about Pogue McGoal, Ireland's only football magazine. The new issue is out, and uh, that's coming up later on in the show, but I'm joined by James Carew from Pogue McGoal now. James, how are you getting on? I'm good, Ender. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, it's good to have you back on. So we usually have you back on every uh, every year when this new magazine comes out. So again, a new issue, Pogue McGoal. It's uh, a very nice piece to look at. Firstly, anybody who's on camera and watching on YouTube will see it. It's a yellow cover this time, but uh, some great writing in here. We might touch on it later on, but um, the Ireland game last night, were you watching the nil-all draw? I sure was, yeah. I'm, I'm based in London, so kind of watching it on Sky, but also getting the feedback from people at home. I think, like you said, it was, it was really impressive, wasn't it? It was just nice to watch. We played some brilliant stuff. Uh, no, none more so than Shane Duffy. I thought... He was probably my man of the match. He was spraying balls and it was almost John O'Shea on Figo-esque where he kind of, did he do a Cruyff turn on Ronaldo at one point? I mean, that, if that doesn't sum up how far we've come and where we're going, I don't think anything does. Yeah, I, I have a bit of a, a you know, it, it irks me a little bit when people, the, the Cruyff turn, I think, has been overused. I, I'm not <laughs> sure if you can... Not sure if you can classify it fully as a, a Cruyff turn. I'd, I would have it more as the Ronaldo chop to use a, a modern version of it, but I'm not sure if it was a, a complete Cruyff turn, but impressive nonetheless. I mean, it's Shane Duffy Absolutely. doing it on, on Ronaldo. So it's exciting to watch. I mean, I, I, mean I, I always look at the stats and I know some people aren't very into their stats when it comes to judging the performance, but even just, I, I remember being at the Georgia game, the 1-0 win in the last campaign for the Euros under Martin O'Neill where, yes, Ireland won 1-0, but Georgia had, like, 200 more passes in Ireland. They had more possession. They had more shots on goal. And it was a snatch and grab in the Aviva Stadium against Georgia. Whereas, if you compare that against Portugal last night, Ireland had 12 shots. Portugal had 12 shots. Chances created. Ireland had 11 chances created. That's one more than Portugal did. They had 20 passes less in Portugal, 351 passes in total for Ireland. And then... If you're just looking at the the shot map, like I mean, the XG was higher for Ireland. So if you believe in the XG model, then Ireland probably deserved to win that game last night. Um, and when have we ever said that where we would match a team like P Portugal in the stat stake? We we tend to raise our game against the bigger nations, but it's kind of backs to the wall and hope we grab something like Germany, the famous win over Germany, for example. And here we were going toe to toe. Okay, Portugal perhaps were okay, were happy with a draw, but uh, we weren't. We, you know, we still had to take them on at home. So, 
I thought it was a, I thought it was a really impressive performance, and I saw a lot of comments online this morning. That's not always a gauge of the the mindset of the football public, but people saying, you know, I was against Kenny. I thought he was out of his deck. We weren't getting the results, but I've changed my mind. I've seen a lot of that this morning, um, and even watching on Sky, Richard Dunn, who's previously been a little quite critical of Stephen Kenny. He, he said he didn't think he saw any improvement. Last night, he was he was kind of fulsome in his praise. And someone like John Walters as well online, who's perhaps been critical or, or saying he wasn't quite convinced. Last night, again, he was uh, gushing in his praise of the performance. So he is winning people over. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. What is the perception of Stephen Kenny in England, is there even a perception of him? Do people know who he is? Are people starting to figure out who he is, or what? What's the perception in England about of him? They don't know who he is. And I was uh, just Tuesday night. Some work colleagues were were asking me, so how are Ireland doing? And I I told them I think we're we're on the up. I said I think Stephen Kenny is a bit of a visionary because he has said he wants to move away from the kind of the the typical long ball, if you like. And they have just said, that's great, because that's all we've seen from Ireland for since Jack Charlton. You know, the Jack Charlton documentary was aired again on BBC in the last couple of days, and a lot of people were talking about that again. Of course, we love Jack Charlton. Of course, we love that time. But we're almost um, pigeonholed into that. That was our style of football ever since. And here's a man who has come through the League of Ireland, and is unashamedly saying, I want us to play a different way. And now we're starting to see the results of it. Do you think he will get a new contract at the end of this? I mean, it's Luxembourg this weekend. Um, it's a dead rubber game, but if Ireland win, they finish third. And I was, I was just looking back at the previous World Cup campaign of 2014, because everyone compares Ireland to, or Stephen Kenny, essentially to Martin O'Neill. And, this perception of Martin O'Neill is he got results. He got he got wins. He got results. May not have been pretty, but he got uh, he got results. In 2014 for the World Cup campaign, Ireland had four wins, which is more than this campaign. But those four wins came against Faroe Islands and against um, another minnow team that is slipping my mind now. I should, probably should have written this down. But uh, Faroe Islands was one of the two two wins, and they finished fourth in a group of six. Ireland yeah. are about to finish third in a group of five. So yeah. it's not exactly uh, forward momentum, but it's not regression either. So I think the perception of Stephen Kenny of someone who can't get results, who plays ni nice football, but doesn't get results is probably not a correct one. Yeah, if we win at the weekend, <laughs> and we have been de defeated by Luxembourg. I think perhaps what we are missing is that we did really well last night, but we our players are operating at a much lower level. Like Ogbene, is he at Rochdale? Like this is the, you know, uh, Bazunu, excellent player. He's only 18, 19 years old. So Ida, not, not, not perhaps playing at Norwich. So we went into the group as third place seeds. And if we were to beat Luxembourg, that's where we will finish. And, and maybe there's a bit of a recalibration of our expectations that we actually weren't expected to be, uh, certainly not in the kind of football ranking sense. We weren't expected to finish any higher than third. 
we might still end up finishing fourth if we don't manage to do the business. But we also have to take into account this entire rebuilding process that Kenny took on himself to play the likes of Omobama, Delhi, Bazunu, teenagers, Ida, putting these guys in the team. Like it was, it was very brave. Um, he could have fallen on his sword with the results. He may yet, but I think at this point, it would be extremely short-sighted for uh, the FAI to pull the plug on the project or the process. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was Kazakhstan was the other team in uh, 2014. I, I I did write it down. I just forgot to uh, <laughs> just couldn't couldn't bring it up on on memory. But yeah, I, I, it is definitely something that you need to consider. Perversely, the what was perceived to be a good start to the campaign with Luxembourg and. Uh, and Qatar being the uh, first teams to play actually ended up being reversed. If we if we played against Portugal first and the result wasn't the same, wasn't like it wasn't a win or was a loss, then the perception of how quickly or otherwise this team have been progressing might have been different because if Luxembourg came three games later and Ireland were further down the road like they were against Portugal they probably yeah. win that game in, against Luxembourg. So what what you perceive to be a good start can often not be a good start depending on on how the how, how fast the project can move and and how quickly these players are going to be able to get uh, adapted to this new system because again if you listen to uh, like Shane Duffy or Josh Cullen or any of the players that have been in front of the media they are very much of the opinion that this is a process and it's coming along the right way. Shane Duffy saying last night that if you're not, uh, if you don't think there's been progression, then you're writing and watching the wrong stuff. So yeah. I think at, at this point in time, if you are looking at this Ireland team, if you look at that performance from last night, and I don't want to overblow it, it was a draw, but if you look at the performance as it was, and you think there has not been progression since the start of the Stephen Kenny campaign, then you're either not watching correctly or you're choosing to ignore what you're seeing. Absolutely. And I think it's, I, I think sometimes we speak in generalities, especially Irish football fans. A lot of fans look at the result. And so, uh, my, the, my friend I was watching the match with last night said, it's, and, I, and I don't want to uh, cast aspersions on all the Irish football mammies, because my football mammy is absolutely, or my Irish mammy is absolutely someone I can talk football with. But he's, he made the point that, she might poke her head into the living room and say, oh, we're 1-0 we're down. We, we mustn't be very good. Therefore, he's not very good. Like Football doesn't work like that. So a 0-0 draw with Portugal, in fact, was a very, was a very good performance. Um, and I think if you look back, no one wants to do it. But if you actually went back and watched some of the, the whole matches under Martin O'Neill and Trapattoni, if anyone ever wants to do that, I mean, we're playing a different sport now. Mm. I always talk about the away leg against Denmark. Everybody talks about the 5-1 defeat in Dublin. The away leg in Denmark, in my opinion, was a shameful performance. It was 90 minutes of thumping the ball as far away from our goal as possible, not even attempting to try to win the game. And that compared to what we were watching last night, it's just more enjoyable. And that's really why we watch football, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's it, 
if you take all the substance out and just focus on results, then what's the point? Like that's, that's not what football is about. Football, yes, it's about winning. It's about getting results. You want to see your team win. And ultimately, if you go a long period of time without a win and you're playing nice football, you're not really going to enjoy it. Yeah. But I do believe that you put the work in and if you are playing a, a standard of football, then the results will come. And eventually I do, I do think you're seeing that the results sort of turn now and yeah. hopefully they continue to improve and hopefully they get a win against Luxembourg. Funny enough, you say going back to watch the Martin O'Neill games, I'm not going to do that, but what I am going to do, um, it's going to be a piece and off the ball. And again, some people will not like it, but some people, some people will enjoy it. It's basically going to be a stats breakdown of the Martin O'Neill era versus the Stephen Kenny era so far. And obviously there's going to be context to that with the different players and things like that. But I think it'll, no, I haven't looked at the numbers just yet, but I think you will see a vast difference in what Ireland are trying to do versus what Ireland were, were trying to do under Martin O'Neill. So hopefully that will be coming on off the ball in the next couple of weeks. We do want to park the Stephen Kenny stuff and the Ireland stuff for now though, because there is a new issue of Pope McGoal. I'm speaking to James Carew from Pope McGoal. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll come back and we'll chat about some of the great pieces that's in the new issue of Pope McGoal. Stay tuned. At times it's becoming farcical and you have to really feel for these players and management. This isn't normal in any shape or form. For your first chance to hear Brian O'Driscoll on OTB, download the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications. Team 33, this is OTB Sports Radio. Now you're welcome. Welcome back to Team 33. Uh, end of call here with you. And I'm joined on the line by James Crew, who is uh, part of the Pogue McGoal magazine, Ireland's only football magazine. There is a new issue out now. And uh, I mean, it's full of great stuff. There's 74 pages of football writing. It's got writers from Ireland, from England, from Brazil, from Poland. There's stuff in there from people from Netherlands. You've got uh, a real variety of stuff from a, a piece on Ali Ja to Brian Kerr to uh, a, a brilliant article on the uh, business of, of football boots and how that all ties around. So James, firstly, tell us a little bit about getting this series together how how difficult or otherwise was it to pull i think there's is there 16 extra pages compared to last uh the last series so there's a great bulk of writing in this yeah 12 extra pages and uh, including your piece which we might talk about but we're delighted to have i, I really like your piece talking about the links between donegal and glasgow and glasgow celtic but uh yeah we're, we're it, it's been a great particularly over the last year and 18 months of lockdown has been obviously a great outlet for us to produce another magazine. But we're really pleased with this issue. We're always trying to up our game and improve it and have more contributors, more content. Um, so yeah, we have extra pages. We're back stocked in Eason's around Ireland, which is brilliant for us. Um, we had our last issue in Eason's at the time. It was the restrictions in Ireland where people weren't really out and about in shops. So we're hoping that much more people discover us this time, especially in the run up to Christmas. It's a great line for us. I work in PR to say we're Ireland's only football magazine, but it's quite astounding, isn't it? That mm. two brothers working out in our bedrooms, like literally <laughs> are producing this, but uh, we're really pleased with it. And as ever, we're really pleased with the contributors who, as you have said, are from all over the world. 
Yeah, well, we kind of spoke about substance and, uh, you know, in the world of football, there's not often so much substance in how quickly it moves. But the likes of this and the likes of the other series, there's so much great stuff in it that you can keep returning to it. And, uh, like, it's not something that's just thrown together in the space of, you know, a day by journalists who are over over swamped and doing 15 other things at the one time. These are long-form pieces that, you know, live on and you can return to them as well yeah i mean it's a passion project football is our passion i'm i'm a trained journalist i've worked in sports journalism but my brother key is a graphic designer and this is intended to be a keepsake almost like a coffee table anthology that's what we're aiming for and it's so it's as much a piece of design as it is writing we want the writing and the look and feel to be to complement each other, and it's it's like six, eight, twelve months worth of work, um, not least from our contributors who really put their passion into it, put the to take the time to research, illustrators taking the time to research what the article is about. For example, we might take an article on Brian Kerr or an Irish a man named Jack Mitchell in Waterford and give it to an artist from the other side of the world. And that's, that's the collaboration that we're looking for. And it's a cliche that you, football is the universal language, but it is, it, 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 you can, you can take a piece of a club, the third biggest club in Krakow in Poland that we've got, for example. And yet when you delve into it, you get something that we find interesting and therefore we hope others do. Mm. We might start with your piece then, and it sort of ties in with our conversation around Stephen Kenny and what he's trying to achieve with the Irish team. It's called uh, Greener on the Other Side, and it's about Brian Kerr, the man who, you know, everybody loves him from his media days. You can still see him pictured standing on the the terrace in, in St. Pat's in Richard, Richmond Park to go see the side that he used to manage. Um, tell us a little, about, a little bit about this piece and, and why you wrote it. I'm a big fan of Brian Kerr, and I think a lot of people feel with the shenanigans, if you like, of the FAI over the over recent times, and now with this supposedly new FAI, that Brian Kerr was a man who was unfortunately sidelined by the regime, that he has so much to offer Irish football with his knowledge He's kind of, I, I write a kind of cybernetic, on, bordering on cybernetic knowledge of Irish footballers and the structures and what could and should be done. And so I, I just thought, especially for an international audience and how it aligns with the conversations around Kenny, like Brian Kerr was unknown when he became, certainly outside Ireland, when he became the Irish manager. And I reference in the piece that some of the British tabloids had headlines of Brian who, like, who is this guy? And Brian Kerr faced those same questions that Kenny did. He, he came through the League of Ireland. Is he up to it? Is he out of his deck? The same kind of things that Kenny is, uh, has to put up with now. And so I thought it was interesting to go back and give a profile of um, a man beloved, uh, particularly in League of Ireland circles, and mirrors what Kenny is trying to achieve now and the, the path he has taken. Hmm. Yeah, there's a guy that most people will know from GA circles, uh, Cyril Farrell, 
the former Galway manager, and he has the same sort of knowledge of hurling as you'd say Brian Kerr. If you throw a question to someone to Cyril about you know and uh, the Kilkenny Championship, he, he'd be able to tell you who played here and what players were good. And from twenty years ago, he'd be able to pick out someone that really stood out. And I feel like that's what Brian Kerr has as well, but to a broader stage because you're talking about the most participated sport in Ireland in football. And I remember having a conversation with Brian Kerr on the way back from London. He was doing commentary on a game and I was doing uh, reports on a, a separate game, but we were sitting in, in the airport on the way back and I was playing for Drumcondra AFC at the time and got chatting to him about that. And he was telling me about the incredible history that they had. And he was picking out five or six players from, from 40 years ago that were standout players and was telling me what they were like and the st- the style of play they played. And, his knowledge goes beyond what you would imagine anybody in Ireland really has of the Irish football scene. Yeah, and I think Damien Duff even uh, alluded to it when he was announced as Shelburne manager. Not only he was saying Tolka Park was a special place for him because of those underage games he played under Brian, but I think he also said that Brian Kerr knows every player in the world and Damien needs to get to, just needs to get to know the players in the Premier Division of Ireland. So, I mean, you only have to listen to him. I, I think he, he's he, uh, football uh, presenters pose a question to him, but the level of detail is incredible. Um, and I, I remember, I referenced at the start of the piece, I remember watching his unveiling as Irish manager on, live on Sky Sports News. And afterwards, the Sky Sports presenter said, what a performance by Brian Kerr. The coronation, I think they called it, because he, was, he knew everyone in the room. He knew the journalists. He was able to talk about clubs, able to talk about players. And it was very much for people who came through the Irish system or working grassroots football. It was like, this is our man who's made it to the top. And that's why it has been frustrating to see him sidelined and what he could have offered. Although now with Rude Doctor being having moved on, there are some whispers that this could be a, a role uh, primed for Brian to, to step back in if that's something he wanted to do. I think we all think he has an, a lot to offer. Mm. Uh, yeah, it, it, it certainly seems that he should be involved in, in some way, shape or form. And with the new regime in charge, maybe they will bring him back in as a gesture of goodwill. It's hard to tell how much has actually changed within the FAI without being inside of it. So maybe potentially it, it hasn't changed all that much. But before we finish up with Brian Kerr, I guess let's look back at him as a manager because, I mean, as people of a certain age, like myself, I was quite young when Brian Kerr was the Ireland manager. I was aware of it. Um, I wasn't particularly uh i wasn't really old enough to have a good grasp of what was going on and what kind of manager he was but I, he was really successful with the underage teams because you obviously have that story of the the youth uh euros but i hadn't realized he was also successful at the olympics as well with a, an underage side and like this wasn't a guy who stepped into a role that he was unqualified for if you compare to other the way that other nations act in terms of their managers he was very well suited to this senior management role. He didn't just, you know, he didn't look his way into this. Absolutely. And that's how I opened the article was without mentioning his name. 
here is a man who at domestic level, I think was the first title for four decades with his club, which he followed up again a number of years later. He, he retook the, the league crown. Then he becomes technical director of his national association. He takes the under-16s and under-18 teams, makes them European champions, never before achieved by the country, and then is offered the national team job. Outside of Ireland, if you didn't know who he was, you would just say, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? And yet, Brian Kerr, yes, he's kind of heralded as our man, our domestic league man at the top, but didn't have universal backing. And that's referenced later in the piece that... Brian felt machinations within the FAI moved against him. And when his contract wasn't renewed, most people said, well, that's really unfortunate. And then he was completely sidelined until today. He's still sidelined to this day. I said in the piece, I think Brian said, when the new regime was introduced, he said, I might get a ticket now. And I've heard that said, former manager own hand not getting tickets because he fell foul of the, the association. So that's the environment he had to come through and the structures he had to battle against. Mm. And like, it's, it's hard to tell what his regime was like as an Ireland manager. I, I, I feel like, again, it falls into the bracket of Stephen Kenny and the disdain to which Irish people hold the League of Ireland that even though the results may not have been all that different to previous regimes, sort of like Stephen Kenny's results are not all that different to Martin O'Neill's because he doesn't have that level behind him where he went across the water and has success. People are automatically against him. And there's already sort of, if you want to imagine in, in football terms, he's already at a, a five and O loss uh, record before he even has his first game. Absolutely. And I do understand, like, you know, the League of Ireland is a certain level. But Roy Keane came through the League of Ireland. Seamus Coleman came through. James McLean. Uh, half the team now came through the League of Ireland. Gavin Bazunu. You know, and we, it's often said that Irish kids are not going over to England anymore. We know the League of Ireland is 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 raising in standard is becoming a much more Daniel McDonald often says on off the ball it's becoming a much more technical league much younger league and so that's Kenny has come through that I've been thinking a lot about this in recent days in other sports hurling Gaelic football horse racing uh, golf Ireland produces from our own pool world and, and yet if we do a true football and they don't go to England, suddenly everybody dismisses it. So, you know, what, what's stopping a technical coach like Stephen Kenny, who managed in the Europa League group stages, got results in the Europa League? If you do it with a League of Ireland side, surely that says you're even better at this coaching game because you're getting players of a perceived lower standard to perform at this elite level hmm. yeah I mean it's just the way it is at the minute I think it'll take decades to shape the opinion of people who but I mean I, I don't even know if you're ever going to shape the opinion of those who just love the Premier League and I, I mean I have no qualms against people who watch the Premier League I watch the Premier League I support a Premier League club but I also support an Irish club um, 
but I think we're at a level now where even like the top six teams, it's just, it's a completely different level of support. It's a different mentality to the sport. Anything outside of that is just not good enough. It's sort of the idea that, you know, uh, like of, of course, Steven Gerrard, for example, is going to go to Aston Villa from Rangers. Of course he is. But the only reason is that is money. Like, I mean, like really and truly, that's what it comes down to. But people, it just, it's the perception of the Premier League as the be all and end all of world football now that, um, is gonna it's gonna be difficult to work against this no matter how far Irish football comes I think um we'll move on to another couple of pieces which one do you want to go to next well do you want to look at yours <laughs> we'll look at mine we'll take a look at mine yeah. so um I'll give you the synopsis of the piece it's called Little Donegal and you might have heard Kieran Cunningham talk about this in passing on the uh, Mount Rushmore series that we did on off the ball during the first lockdown it's essentially a detail of the Irish connection, the Donegal connection with Glasgow and how that has influenced Irish football and how Ireland has influenced, or Donegal in specific has uh, influenced Glasgow. So if you look at the final paragraph, I think it's it sums up what the piece is all about. Um, basically, Charlie Gallagher, Bernie Slavin, Ray Houghton, Owen Coyle, Tommy Coyne, Aidan McGeady, James McCarthy, uh, seven sons of Donegal with uh, Glasgow accents. So that's sort of what the piece is about. It's about the link between the two of them and how um, Irish immigrants affected Glasgow and how Glasgow then returned that favour with Irish football. Yeah, and I didn't know the depth of the connection there. Obviously, we kind of, you know, like Ray Houghton, always father from Donegal, but then your piece explains in daily life how connected the two locations are. I think you said like there's a bus service or there was a bus service. Mm. So like I'm a goalkeeper. Packy Bonner is my sporting hero and always, always will be. And your piece references like going to Glasgow to take, to go on trial with Celtic. But for people in Donegal, going to Glasgow was a part of everyday life. People went there for Mm. work. People went there to visit family people who, cousins who lived there came back every summer to Donegal. And so the, I, I wasn't aware of how strong those roots were and your piece brings it to life. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is um, I'm obviously, people have heard me talk about it enough that I support Celtic. Uh, they've been my number one team. And um, the number one question I always get is, why do people in Donegal all support Celtic. Why? Why is that link there? And it is. It is passing. It's not as strong as it once was. But I mean, the connection is unbelievable. It, it, I'll bring you through the history of it. Essentially, an area called the Rosses, which is uh, Glenties and Guidor. It's in the northwest, uh, northwest of Ireland, and it all started with uh, what were called tatty pickers, or uh, and if you know the slang, tatty is uh, another word for potato. Uh, it also was uh, in Mayo as well. They, they would go over to Scotland in the 20th century to be tatty pickers, essentially pick the potatoes. And it was so uh, such a normal thing to go from Donegal to Glasgow that there was a bus service that you referenced. It was called Bus Glasgow in Irish, so Glasgow, or uh, I don't know how you pronounce it in, in Gwilga. But it then entrenched itself in life, in everyday life. So, for example, the the different slang terms that we use. Um, I, I recently did, I'm not sure if you came across the New York Times dialect 
uh, quiz that they did. So they had one where you basically answer, I think it's a hundred questions or something on your dialect. And it gives you a, a map then of the world of where your dialect matches up with. And mine was more in Scotland than it was in Ireland. Right. Uh, it was, it was, it was Donegal, mid Ulster and then Glasgow. So that's, mm. that's how much uh, it comes into everyday life. And then the funniest part is tenants is the lagger of choice. I don't think it would be anybody else's lagger of choice except for <laughs> um, Donegal and Glasgow. Yeah. And your piece, uh, sometimes when we've talked about like the granny rule or whatever, we've been, people can be dismissive of it. But in the case of people like McGeady and James McCarthy and who have that Donegal connection, it, it was never, it was never really in doubt that they would play for Ireland because their families have such a strong connection to that part of Ireland. And I think your piece talks about own coil is the first your piece is called little glasgow or little donegal sorry an area of of glasgow and own coil is the person who mentions it in the piece because it was, it was kind of like you had to be tough and the irish stuck together over there uh, but the connection was so strong there was never really a doubt that these players the sons of immigrants would grow up and play for ireland even if sometimes, as you say, on this side of the IRC, maybe their loyalty has been questioned. Mm. Yeah, James McCarthy is an interesting one in particular because I feel like because his performances didn't match up to what he was doing at club level, people were, always had this perception of him that he only chose Ireland because he couldn't get into the Scotland team, which, I mean, I think is horrendously unfair on a player like James McCarthy who was playing for Everton when he first uh, came across to Ireland. And he, he's very much in the same boat as Aid McGeady, who was over and back to Donegal the entire time throughout his childhood with his family. His family were all from Donegal. And uh, the little Donegal area in Glasgow is uh, an area called Gorbals, which is, um, it would have been considered probably a slum, if you want to use that term, uh, public housing, if you want to use the kind term. But it was a rough area. It was a, a place where Irish immigrants who, obviously did not have much money went over to and they had a community and that's that's what Owen Coyle grew up in uh, James McCarthy grew up in a similar area to that as well the same area that um, a couple of Leeds players grew up in as well it was a real just a football zone and then it just culminates in the Irish football team then you have players like Charlie Gallagher who was one of the Lisbon Lions Bernie Slavin you know uh Owen Coyle was obviously he was short-lived in his Irish career, but Ed McGiddy is I think is the top he's in the top five or top six of Ireland uh, caps uh, when it comes to his appearances for Ireland. So it definitely does work both ways. It doesn't just we're not just sending people out to these countries. They they come back and they they want to represent Ireland. Sort of like the area of Preston that um, Kevin Kilban grew up in. Like he he talks about that. He he says that there was absolutely no doubt that he was Irish growing up, even though he had an English accent, he knew that in the area, everyone else was Irish. It wasn't a question of, was he England? Was he ever going to play for England? It was, I'm Kevin Kilban, I'm from Ireland. Why would I play for England? Yeah. And it's, it's something that's not really explored too much in Irish culture, I think. I'm living in here in the UK almost 12 years. And without kind of going into the Grealish rice conversation, the Irish... British, if you like, the people who grow up in England with Irish parents and grandparents, 
their story is never really explored too much. It's kind of like, well, of course you were going to play for Ireland. And if you played for England, you're almost like traitor to the cause. And it's much mm. more nuanced than that. They are from both countries. They are from both cultures. And I think what your piece does is, while those players were always going to play for Ireland, it just shows that those connections go both ways. And I think it's mm. something that we perhaps we could explore more in, in Irish media or cultural life. Yeah, I think you have to take into account when and where these people move to as well, because Glasgow is a very separated city. To this day, there is still anti-Catholic sentiment, anti-Irish sentiment within certain parts of the city. So they didn't just face everyday life. They faced a, a tough life in, in the sense of racism and, and what other Irish players face uh, to this day, even with James McLean uh, in certain quarters. And I think that's what, you know, Jack Grealish and Declan Rice, how they differ to the likes of Kevin Colban, the likes of Gary Breen and Aid McGeady, James McCarthy, these guys who grew up in areas and times where Irish people were so uh, together and com- uh, in a really tight-knit community because they had to be for their own safety and for their own uh, sense of being. Whereas, you know, Jack Grealish, he grew up as an English person. He didn't really grow up, grow up as an Irish person in an Irish community that happened to be in England. So I yeah. I think that's, that's where things differ when it comes to them. And actually, um, I, I wanted to touch... A little bit more on Pope McGoal, but now that we're talking about this, you were at a a Wigan game recently enough with uh, James McLean now playing for them. So how was that? How was he perceived there? Yeah, so I live in an area close to where Wimbledon are back playing in the old Plough Lane and they've redeveloped it. So it's a nice, tidy little ground and it's quite a nice day out to go along and League One or whatever. Wimbledon were hopeless, I have to say, but it was a nice day out. But yeah, they were playing Wigan, who I think are top of that division now. And James McLean was one of the standout players there. But we happened to have seats right in the front row by the corner flag. And James takes a lot of the corners, the corner kicks. So we saw it firsthand. It's, it's just like... People say around this time of year, November, all this, it starts up with the poppy thing with McLean. It isn't just November. It's every week at every away ground he goes there. It's, and it's just mob mentality. It's just like, oh, it's in the media that we have to, uh, we have to boo McLean. So everybody does it. And it was, it was kind of disgusting, I have to say. And we were so close to him that when the boos were kind of going up, we were like, uh, Jimmy, we love you. Don't listen to these these guys. And then you heard other Irish accents around you kind of shouting stuff like someone was shouting Mayo for Sam and this kind of stuff. But you kind of realise that why would... There's so many Irish in London and so many Irish at all these games. Why would they participate in this? And it really... I have to say it really turned me against supporting Wimbledon that day and James McLean got on the score sheet one one guy I won't repeat what he said took it upon himself to walk up out of the stand and up to the fence and shout at him and he was escorted away by stewards I don't know if he was thrown out but it's just it just gave you an insight that he's put he's not just putting up with this every November he's putting up with this 
every single week. And we saw that firsthand. That's uh, that's quite interesting. Was anybody, like, did the, did the people in the stands who were shouting this abuse notice you guys? And, like, did they acknowledge the fact that there might be Irish people standing beside them when they're shouting this kind of thing? Uh, well, possibly. We were vocal in our support for him. Nobody had a go at us. It feels a little, Wimbledon feels a little bit of a, sedate kind of atmosphere you know it's kind of a nice club back where they are very small ground maybe there's a hardcore element who might have had words with us we were like we were directly in front of a steward who was a young guy and he kind of he asked us why are they booing McLean he didn't know and we said you know the poppy thing and he said well he should wear the poppy shouldn't he and I said uh Maybe read up on it, son. And he was he like he was a lovely chap, but it's just kind of like they don't even know why they're doing it now. It's just yeah. that's what you do. You happened. boo James McLean. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> James McLean not wearing the poppy is less, um, in my opinion, it, it it is less of a a thing where it goes against the ethos of it to what some of the British people are doing right now, dressing themselves fully in poppies. I think that's more disrespectful than anything James McLean has ever done. It's become just a thing where get as many poppies onto you as possible. And, and the message has been completely lost regardless of whether you agree with the message anyway. But um, let's finish up with the Pope McGoal issue then. Is there anything else you want to highlight in it before we finish up? Well, I am, I am biased, but I do think it's the best one yet. I think, it, I think the look of it is incredible. We're so pleased with the illustrations and the photography um, it's got that mix again, as you say, of the short form. You can jump in, read the short form articles, come back, maybe spend some time on the longer ones. So just as a little taster that in some of those short form articles, uh, Boca Juniors, for example, I think there's a kind of urban legend that they're blue and gold because of a Tipperary connection. I believe there is a Tipperary connection, a former coach. But the reason they wear blue and gold, which I didn't know, uh, was because they used to wear black and white and so did another team in that area in the city in, in Argentina. So they played a game to decide who could keep the colours and Boca lost and then decided they would adopt the colours of the next ship to come into port and it happened to be from Sweden. So that's why they wear blue and gold and it's just, I think those little things are fascinating that article originally started out as an exploration of the club crest. But when you, when you take a little detailed look, you find a little nugget that takes you off on a completely different direction. And I love that kind of stuff. I think that's the glory of uh, creating a piece like this, that you just find so many brilliant stories from different parts of the world. And as we always do, there's a great mix of Irish content in there as well. Yeah. That's very interesting because the Boca kit is definitely one of the nicest kits on the planet at the minute if uh, you're, you're being unbiased about it. And also yeah. there is definitely an Irish connection in Argentina. I think there's actually a yeah. similar enough area to Little Donegal in, uh, in Argentina, not Little Donegal, but in terms of the Irish names, the, uh, the slang they use, I think they're weird. there's a weird connection there somewhere. I presume it would come from famine times and uh, the, the famine ships going all over the place with the British. Um, yeah. But I have not explored that. I am speculating, but I've, well, there's a, 
Yeah, I think there's teams called Higgins FC, named after an admiral in the Navy. Uh, there's an Argentinian restaurant around here, and I've, I got talking to him about the magazine, and his club is uh, Velez Sarsfield, which is clearly <laughs> got an Irish connection. So yeah. that's definitely yeah. one for a future edition. Yeah, we'll have a look into that. Uh, James Crew from uh, Pogue McGall, uh, Ireland's only football magazine. You can get it in uh, Easons or you can get it online as well i'll put a link into the podcast description as well if you want to have a look for that it's well worth and it, it's well worth the uh, the purchase and also it would make a great stocking filler as well for christmas if if anybody is interested in football so uh james thanks very much for coming on tonight thank you and it's a pleasure cheers okay uh that is uh pope mcgall you can get that in Easton's or online as well. We'll take a quick break here and we'll be back after these. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. All right, so that is us done on this week's Team 33. Thanks as ever to you for listening. If you want to listen back to that podcast, you can get it in the OTB Sports app. That's available now in the App Store or Google Play. You can subscribe to the Team 33 network and get notified every time a podcast goes live if you want to get the pogma goal again the place to do do so is at your local essence where you can pick it up there or you can order it online as well on pogma goal their twitter account is pogma goal so you'll be able to get the link there some really good stuff and i can't recommend it highly enough and i am biased there is a piece from myself in it as well so if you want to listen if you want to read that or you want to read the rest of the great stuff that's in the pogma goal that's where you can get it. We will be back again on Team 33 in the same time, same place next week. But until then, Eowas, Langofoil, take away Johan. Hey!